This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Good morning, everybody. How are you guys doing today? Good, good. I'm glad you're doing awesome. I am doing awesome as well. If we haven't met yet, my name's Kevin, and I'm going to be extra cool because I have not one, not two, not three, but four guitar picks on my stage So I'm going to throw one right here just to add some cool points to this message. Uh, I am so, so happy that you chose to be here today as we continue our series, One Week to Live, which is diving into the last week of Jesus' life and allowing the things that he said and did, and in some cases the things that he didn't say, uh, to shape us and to impact us and to move us towards a more intimate and real and deep and life-changing connection with him. So it's going to be an incredible time. When you came in, you got a program that looks just like this. Ron mentioned it earlier. Inside are some teaching notes. Go ahead and pull those out. And I'm going to ask you something because I was uh, listening to a seminar on communication, and then I read a book on preaching this weekend, and it raised some questions for me. So I'm going to ask you a question, and there is no guilt or shame associated with it. I just want to get a read for our community. How many of you take these teaching notes and at least Two out of the four weeks on a Sunday, you take them home and you look at them throughout the week at some point. Will you raise your hand so I can see? Okay, so like a third, maybe a third, maybe a little quarter of you. For those of you who take these notes home and look at them, I want you to take notes today. And I want you to engage through this because it's one way that you listen. For those of you who just write it down to fill time or to to try to figure out what I'm going to say next, crumple it up and throw it away. Do not use these teaching notes today. Instead, what I'd like you to do is just listen for one thing that God might want to say to you. So if you forget everything else today, what's the one thing that God wants to speak to you today? What's the one thing God wants you to take out of here and remember this week? Because if we don't remember it this week, if we just take notes and then throw them in the recycling and walk out, it will not change our lives. And the whole goal here is not information. It is application that leads to transformation. We want our lives to be transformed by experiencing God. And if you don't remember anything, how can your life be transformed? So if you're a note taker, man, God bless you. I love you. Take those notes. We made them for you. If you're not, if you just do it because I always tell you, take out your notes and start filling them in, crumple them up, throw them away. Don't take notes. Listen for the one thing that could potentially change your life. I'm going to pray that God speaks that one thing to us today. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place to guide and to lead our conversation Lord, you have uh, an incredible story, a a testimony, a life lived through Jesus Christ that we want to dive in fully to today. Uh, Would you you help us to find ourselves in uh, this picture, in this story, in the life of Jesus as we enter into the last 24 hours of his life today? Would you speak to us? Would you guide us? And Holy Spirit, would you tune us into Uh, the whisper of your voice so that we could hear the one thing that you're speaking to each of us and take that and be transformed by putting it into practice in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, many of us this weekend have been inviting our neighbors over for open houses, and I had a great time. We invited our neighbors over to our house yesterday, 
And uh, we had one neighbor show up, which was really fun. She came, and she's uh, my wife and my age. She's in her early 30s, and she has a fifth-grade daughter. So she came with her daughter, and then her daughter had a sleepover, so her daughter's friend came. So it was two 11-year-olds, and then uh, us and our two kids, and we had pancakes, and my pancakes are incredible. So it was worth the price of admission. It really was. Um, and I had such a fun time getting to know her. We, we didn't know each other that well. We've lived by each other for two years, but we didn't really know each other. For instance, both of us, our first cassette tape was New Kids on the Block. And, and that just, it bonded us together. I mean, it really, it was a great, and it was an incredible moment. So we're having this delicious breakfast of pancakes and scones and coffee, three of my favorite things in the world. And uh, partway through, her 11-year-old daughter gets a, a call on her cell phone. And so she goes outside to take the call, and she walks in, and we had one of those conversations. And it's one of those uh, conversations where you know you're getting old. It's the, I know I'm getting old conversation, because she walked back in and sat down, and her mom and I both looked at each other and said, I didn't have a cell phone until I was 19, until I was 18, you know. We didn't have to be slaves to our cell phone. We didn't even have cell phones back when I was a kid. And she's just looking at us like, wow, Kevin, I thought you were cool, even if my mom wasn't, but apparently you're both lame. <laughs> and so then we're, we're talking about that, and we talked about something she'd never heard of. We talked about pagers. We had pagers in high school. Who had a pager? Any pagers? Yes. Which immediately took us to what? Because a pager wasn't just so you could get a phone number. It, there's still a pager over here. That's fantastic. He just threw it up. That's, that's amazing. A pager for pager's sake when you're in high school doesn't matter. You don't want to see that your parents want to get a hold of you. You want to know pager code, right? Pager code is important. So I, I still remember how to say good night in pager code. I mean, it, it's very important. And so I remember being 16 and thinking I was getting a pager for Christmas. And so what I did was I didn't just want this pager. I needed to learn pager code, but I didn't know code. Uh, and so I went to a girl at school, and I said, write out pager code for me. Give me the numbers and the corresponding letters so that if I get a pager for Christmas, I'll have pager code. So she wrote it out for me. I made a second copy for my brother, assuming if I got a pager, he'd get a pager, because years earlier, he wanted a unicycle, and I got stuck with a unicycle. So I just figured that's the way it was going to go. And so I put them in my roll-top desk and shut the top of the desk. Now, my parents are incredible parents. They are fantastic. My dad's a principal, so he knows kids and so they did periodic checks of our room. They just did a sweep, a mind sweep of the room. So one night we're at dinner, and this is how I remember it. Okay, so take it through the lens of a 16-year-old. We're at dinner, and all of a sudden my dad pulls out the pager code, and in my mind, this is just my mind, but he slams it on the table, and he says to me, are you smoking drugs? You know, are, are, you, are you dealing the marijuana? I mean, this is how I remember it. And I got extremely defensive. No, I'm not, I've never, I've never, you know, I've never puffed the magic dragon in my life. I'm not, I'm not smoking drugs. I'm not smoking marijuana. I'm not, I'm not using, I'm not dealing. Come on, you know me better than that. I would never do that. And I got angry and I took the pager code away. I said, it's pager code. And you know what? I thought maybe I'd get a pager for Christmas and I wanted to know pager code. I even made one for Todd and you ruined Christmas. And I said, I'm never going to leave my desk unlocked again. And I stormed out of there and I put it in there and I locked the door and I was angry, and I was defensive. Because why? Because I had been accused of something unjustly. I had been accused of something, of committing a crime, of puffing the magic dragon, and I did not do it. And it made me angry, and it made me defensive, and I lashed out at my parents. In reality, he just said, hey, what is this? You know, he probably just asked me the question and then asked, are you dealing drugs? Because truth is, numbers and letters, it could, I could see that. As an adult, as a parent now, I could see that. But I got crazy defensive. And, 
and here's what I, I want us to look at today, because I don't think I'm alone in my response. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think anyone likes to be accused of something. None of us likes to be accused. Whether it's true or false, I think we get defensive. If someone says something about me, and especially if it's not true, or if it uh, attacks my character, if someone says I'm a cheater or a liar or I stole something or I'm not right in my belief system, what do we do? We get angry when we're accused of things, and we lash out. Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? Whether you were a child or an adult? Has your wife ever accused you of, some, of not doing something that you were supposed to do or doing something you weren't supposed to do? Or uh, kids, high schoolers and college folks, have your parents ever accused you of something that you didn't do? How did that make you feel? My guess is you were angry. You were defensive. You were hurt. And here's what happens in our society today. We are full of people who accuse other people. And then when we get accused, we get hurt. And so we lash out. We attack. And then if you're in marriage and you're the attacker, then what's your spouse do? They, they retreat. And you have this game of cat and mouse where one person's attacking, one person's retreating. The relationship is getting torn apart. See, most of us, when we're accused, we, we like to lash out. If you're like me, if you're kind of a go get them kind of person, you lash out at the person. Don't you ever accuse me of that. How dare you say that about me? We've been married for 10 years. How could you think that about me? And we lash out. Or we start to blame. And blame's as early as, you know, the first book of the Bible. When the first sin happens, you know, this, it all comes in and God says to the guy, why'd you do that? The guy said, well, you gave me this girl. It's her fault. The girl said, well, you should let the snake come into the garden. It's its fault, right? And blame starts. Yesterday, we were running errands with our two kids, Maddie and Landon. Landon's one, Maddie's three and a half. And uh, Maria and I were at the store, and she said, hey, go put something back for me if you would. I'm going to get the kids out to the car. So I said, great. I put that thing back. I came to the car. Maddie is over by her car seat inside the car. Maria's putting Landon into his car seat. So I went over to Maddie's side, and I was sanitizing her hands because I'm a bit of a germaphobe. And um, I shut the door, and Maria shut Landon's door and got in the car, and we pulled out, and we started to drive away. And about 50 yards later, Maddie says to me, Daddy, I'm not strapped in. And before you call CPS on me, it wasn't, we were going slow, slow and low. That's how we like to roll. So here's what happens. Two things. First, I'm scared for my daughter. Second, I'm terrified because there's a highway patrol officer like 50 feet in front of me. And he's just happened. So I, I slow down to the speed limit, baby. I'm keeping it slow. Maria immediately jumps to the back and she's strapping it as fast as she can. Please tell me I'm not the only one who's ever forgotten to strap my kid into their car. I said, okay, good. Good. We got a pager and a, and a bad parent in the same spot. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And they're related. That's even better. Love it. Good, good. I had a pager, and I'm apparently, yeah, I'm with you. And here's what we did. As soon as the kids were strapped in, we both gave each other the look. Now, we wouldn't have said it because the kids were right behind us. We both gave each other the look, and here was the look. Why didn't you strap her in? She gave me the look. You were, you, what do you, why didn't you strap her in? And then we started quietly, kind of, we turned up the music a little bit, set the back volume. So I said, why didn't you strap her into the car? She said, well, you were over there with her. You were supposed to strap her. I said, no, you brought her into the car. It's your fault. Just no, it's your fault. No, it's your fault. And we accuse back. When we get accused of something, what do we do? We accuse back. Now that was, we were kind of light and happy at that point, but isn't that what happens in our relationships? 
Your boss accuses you of being a bad worker, so what do you do? You accuse him of being a bad boss. Well, I'd be a better boss. I'd be a better worker if you were a better boss. I'd be a better husband if you were a better wife. I'd be a better child if you were a better parent. It's your fault that I'm so screwed up, so you pay for my counseling. I'd be a better student if my teacher was a better teacher. But they stink, and they're old, and they have pagers, and they're outdated, right? And so we blame back. And I really think this is an epidemic in our society today. Because accusations are always going to come. People are always going to think bad things about you, wrong things about you. If the person that loves you most in the world has times where they think badly about you, I guarantee the rest of the world thinks badly about you too. Wars are fought because one person accuses another person or one country accuses another country of something and then the other person accuses back or the other country accuses back. Wars are fought. Relationships break down. Marriages end in divorce. Why? Because we don't know how to deal with accusations. And so here's the question that I want us to stick with today. Is it possible to respond differently to accusations than the way we currently do? Is there another way to respond to accusations that won't lead to fractured relationships, that won't lead to your kids being estranged from you, that won't lead to your marriage feeling more like two roommates than partners in life? Or are we just doomed to broken relationships? Luckily for us, this is not a new question. The Bible has been speaking to this issue for thousands and thousands of years. And in the last 20 hours of Jesus' life, he spoke directly to the issue of how to deal with accusations. He said there's another way to deal with it, And there's a premise behind it that if we can understand this premise, it will transform the way we act when we're accused. See, he knew something that we have a hard time remembering. So we're going to talk about the thing that Jesus always knew that we often forget. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 and then 27 today in this trial of Jesus. So last week we were in the garden. Jesus was praying up on uh, this hillside. And he, he sensed God telling him uh, one more time, this is the direction you're going to go. You are going to be condemned. You're going to be accused. You're going to be crucified. This is the direction I have for you for the redeeming of the entire world. And he went back to his disciples and they were asleep. So we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 26, verse 46. And Jesus got done praying and he walked back to his disciples and he said, get up. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And while they were still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, one of his disciples, one of his closest friends, came up accompanied by a large crowd, and they had swords, and they had clubs, and they probably had torches because it was night. And so you see them walking up the hill, this huge group with torches and clubs and swords, and you hear them marching up. And they arrived. They came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him, Judas gave the people a sign. He said, whoever I kiss, and kissing in that culture was an intimate sign of of friendship, of relationship. You kiss the people you were closest with. He said, whoever I kiss, that's the one. Seize him. Immediately, uh, Judas went to Jesus and said, hail, rabbi, and he kissed him. 
And Jesus said to him, friend. Remember that phrase, friend. It's like an intimate acquaintance, an intimate follower, someone who is close to you. Friend, do what you have come for. I know why you're here. Friend, do what you have come for. And the people came and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus, and we know that it's Peter from some other sources, Peter, one of the 12 disciples, reached out and he drew out his sword. And don't think Braveheart sword, think Peter Pan sword. It was like a dagger. It was a little sword. But he pulls out this dagger sword. and He's like, I'm going to get you. And he struck the slave of the high priest and he cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your Peter Pan looking sword away. For all those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you not think, and catch this, do you not think that if I wanted to, I could appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels, thousands upon thousands of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which says that it must happen this way? And so one of his closest friends the people who he loves, the people who he sat around a campfire with talking about the things of God. It's your favorite life group leader. It's your accountability partner. It's the person that you shared life with since you were a teenager. One of his closest friends comes up and he kisses him. And with that kiss, he betrays him. And it reminds me that the more intimate the relationship is, the more hurtful the betrayal can be. It's the difference between that coworker that you don't really like very much talking smack about you, or finding out that your wife has been telling anyone who will listen how horrible you are and what a bad husband you are. See, the more intimate our relationships are, the more invested we are, the harder it is when we're betrayed. The, more, the harder it is when we are attacked. But Jesus responded with love. And this is what's so incredible. And we ask, how could he respond with love? And we're going to get there in just a second. He responded with love to his attacker. He said, friend, this intimate response, my friend, do what you're about to do. And I would have said a lot of things to Judas at that point because I tend to lash out, right? And I think you would have too. How could you do this to me? How could you, how could you accuse me of this? You've been with me. If anyone knows my character, it's, it's you, you are a jerk. That's the Greek. You're a jerk. But he doesn't. He says, friend, friend. And he brings him in for an embrace. Do what you're about to do. He knew the thing that made all the difference. And here's what he knew. He knew who was ultimately in control of the situation. And that's what we forget. And it happens all the time. See, when we know who's in control, it shapes our actions. How many times have you been driving on the 101 and you get that 100 yards where it actually clears up, goes to three lanes for what, like half a mile between here and San Francisco? Very exciting. Uh, great, great road work for the last couple of years. Um, and you get that opening and, and all of a sudden, you're, you're Dale Earnhardt Jr., right? You're Mario Andretti. You're racing through cars. It's like Frogger. You're, you know, you're going all over the place. You're flying, because you think you're in control of the freeway. And then you see a highway patrol officer with his radar gun, and what do you do? Why? Because now you know who's in control of the freeway. And knowing who's in control of the freeway affects your actions. 
And Jesus knows who's in control of the situation, and it affects his actions. Now, on the other side, Peter has no idea who's in control of the situation. So he pulls out his little Peter Pan-looking sword, and I love it. Peter's a lover. He's not a fighter. He's a fisherman. He's not a, a warrior. Because here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to hack off the guy's head, but somehow he clips his ear. I don't know if the guy went like Matrix on him, and I don't exactly know what happened. I have questions. I really, this is one of those questions that we don't know. He's trying to cut off the guy's head. He's trying to take control of the situation. He's trying to say, look, if you're going to come at me, I'm going to come right back at you. And I got this sword and I don't know, I might die, but I'm going to hack off some limbs on the way out. Because he doesn't know who's in control. Last week, we learned that when he was supposed to be praying and seeking God to remember who's in control, he was asleep. And so he wasn't ready when the situation came. And here's what's scary for us who follow after Jesus. In our more lucid moments, we remember who's in control of our lives. We remember who has ultimate authority, and we follow him. But there are times in our worst moments when we try to take control back, and it's usually when we feel attacked. And what do we do? We pull out our Peter Pan-looking swords, which are usually our mouths, our words, and we start hacking off limbs. And we leave a trail of bloody fingers and ears and arms and toes, and no one's dead, but everybody's hurt, and the relationship is broken because we forget who's in control. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, so as much control as you have, as much control as I have on the situation, never, never, never take your own revenge. And then he calls them beloved. He says, we are a family, we're a community. Beloved, never take your own revenge. But, and here's what we need to remember, leave room for the wrath of God. Because it's written, and this is the key, God says, vengeance is mine, and I will repay the evil done to you. Vengeance is God's. It's not ours. But we want to take vengeance when we get attacked. But he says, don't take revenge. Leave room for God. How many of us don't leave room for God when things start to get heated at work, at school, at home, with our neighbors, when they're bumping their music at 1030 and our kids are trying to go to bed? How many of us forget to leave room for God? Because he says, vengeance is mine and I will repay. Here's, here, this is great. He switches it. He turns it on his head. He says, if you want to tick off your neighbors, and I love this, he says, if you want to just totally mess with people's heads, Instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. See what that does to the relationship. Next time your husband says to you, Honey, this dinner doesn't taste very good. Or, Honey, why didn't you get my slippers ready when I got home so I could read my newspaper? And where is my transporter back to the 50s? Uh, <laughs> say to him, Wow, dear. I, I understand what you're saying. Here, let me get your paper for you. Let me get your slippers for you. Here's your pipe, right? He's not going to know what to do. 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. Because when you do this, and this is why I don't really understand, but, but part of me really likes it. If you do this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Love it. I don't, I don't know why. Something in me is just like, that word picture is great. I'm not going to lash out at you. I think that's what's going to actually change things, lashing out at you. But, but Paul says, love them, serve them. And in doing that, you're actually going to heap burning coals on their head. You ever had someone who no matter what you did, you couldn't get their goat, they just responded by loving you? Oh, didn't it just irk you a little bit? You're just like, come on, I'm baiting you. Take the bait. And they don't do it. Do not overcome evil by evil. Overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It is, there's something in our, in our human nature to want to protect ourselves, defend ourselves, be right in all situations. But Paul says, don't do it. Instead, trust that God has your back so that you can stop having your own back. Because if you really believe that God has your back, that vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, that I will repay, then you don't have to keep worrying about who's trying to attack you, who's getting behind you. You don't have to have your own back. Jesus is your proverbial homeboy. He has your back. He is back here. The world says, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Jesus says, don't do it. We look around and we see people who have been hurt, and then they hurt back. And I want to ask you the question, do you want that in your life, in your marriage, with your kids? When we realize that God wants to defend us, we don't feel the need to defend ourselves any longer. Let's continue on in verse 55. At this time, Jesus said to the crowds, and remember, he knows who's in control. He knows who has his back. So they're attacking him, and this is what he does in return. He says, have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? He asks a question. Every day I used to sit with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me there, but all this has taken place to fulfill the scripture of the prophets. He's saying to fulfill what God already had planned. Then all the disciples left him, and he fled, and everyone's gone. His closest friends, everybody gone. Judas kissed him. They attacked him. They grabbed him. Everyone's gone. And when Jesus is accused, I love it. Here's what he does. He asks probing questions. He asks them some questions. He doesn't attack back. He tries to clarify. Wait a minute. I've been with you every day. Why, why, are, you, why are you coming at me at night like you would a robber? Have I stolen from you? Have I done something wrong? I've been teaching. I've been healing. I've been, I've, been, I've been with you. I've been loving you. I've been feeding thousands. Why are you coming at me now like you would a, a robber? I really believe that fights happen because we forget who's ultimately in control, and so we try to defend ourselves. We lash out. We attack back. Or we retreat and we close off and we leave that relationship. Jesus does something totally counter. He does a third way. He asks questions. Next time you get attacked, try asking a question. Not to defend yourself. And if you're, if you're good at question asking, like I think I'm pretty good at question asking. I can phrase a question so that it proves that I'm right and they're wrong. That's not the goal of the question. The goal of the question is to clarify what's going on in this, in this breakdown. Why are we having this fight? Why are you attacking me? What's happening? Why have you been talking about me behind my back? clarify what's happening. Don't prove your point. Uh, And then they sent Jesus to the high priest. In verse 59, uh, we pick up 
It said, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. So he's uh, with the chief priests, he's with these religious leaders, and uh, they're in the courts. His, all of his people have gone, except Peter's in the background kind of watching to see what's going to happen. Uh, kind of, you know, the adrenaline's pumping in Peter. He's trying to figure out how he could have hacked off the guy's head and, you know, had a better story. Um, and so he's there. They kept trying to obtain this false testimony to put him to death, but they did not find any way to accuse him. And so uh, later some guys came forward and they said, this guy states, this man, Jesus states, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. He did say that, but he was talking about himself. Then the high priest stood up and said, why aren't you going to answer this? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent because he knew that sometimes there are people in the world who just want you out. They have something against you. Uh, Maybe it's your boss. Maybe it's your teacher. Maybe it's a roommate. And no matter what you do or what you say, they won't listen. They just want you out. And in those cases, Jesus just keeps silent. The religious leaders were scared of him because he was taking their power. They were angry at him because he was calling them out on their false religion. And they wanted him dead, and he knew it. And so he just shut up. And sometimes we need to just shut up. But you'll say to me, Kevin, you don't know my coworker. If I don't defend myself, no one will. And I'll tell you this, God will, if you leave room for him to work. Then the high priest said, I'm calling you out by the living God. I adjure you. I call you under oath. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it so yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, from this point on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. It's an Old Testament reference from Daniel. Here's what he's basically saying. I am God. If you have friends who say Jesus never claimed to be God, take him here. He says, I'm God. And that's why they kill him Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has blasphemed, he's made himself equal to God. What further need do we have? Behold, you've heard him, what should we do? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and they slapped him with their fists. And they said, prophecy to us, you Christ, who is the one that hit you? Have you ever had someone spit in your face? I have. My freshman year, I, got, I, was, I, I had to learn how to not talk so much trash playing intramural sports. And I was playing soccer, and I, I kind of made these older guys not like me. One of the guys' name was Damien, but we're not going to go into symbolism there. Um, <laughs> and I talked a lot of trash to these guys. And the next night, they found me, and they threw me against the wall, and they spit in my face, and they were pushing me, and I thought I was going down. And I got to tell you, it was the most humiliating thing that I've ever experienced. I left and I went home and I cried as if being spit on wasn't humiliating enough. (laughs) I went home and I cried about it. And I hear this story and I put myself here and I ask the question, Jesus, if there was ever a time for you to just, just knock a fool out, just punch a guy in the face, now is the time to do it. Just Just slap them back or call down the angels. Do something. Don't just stand there. Don't you read this and think, why are you standing there taking it? And and here's why. It all goes back to our main thing. He knew who was in control. And so he was able to be fully himself in the moment. You ever had a telemarketer just tick you off and you finally just yelled at him and slammed the phone down and then your wife or husband are looking at you and you're like, well, that, that wasn't me. I was just angry. In that moment, here's what I would say. 
that, that was you in here. It just happened to bubble out of here in that moment. In that moment, you forgot that God was in control and you tried to take control and it came out in this anger that you think, that's not me, but the truth is there's something about you in here that needs to be worked on. And Jesus knew who he was in here, in his heart, and so he was able to respond the right way. He never let go. And so they send him over to Pilate, and Pilate is uh, one of the Roman leaders, and um, he is the only one in the area who can uh, put someone to death. So the Jews want him dead, but the Jews are being ruled by the Romans, and the Romans are the only ones who can actually uh, call out a capital offense and try someone on a capital case and put them to death. And so they send him to Pilate, and they say, look, he's claiming to be our king, but we don't have any king except for Caesar. Caesar's our king, and, and Pilate's terrified at this point because he's pretty sure that a revolt's going to start at any moment. All these Jews have gathered to Jerusalem. The Romans are ruling over them. But if the Jews kind of took up their, their, their Peter Pan swords, we could get in a little bit of a fight here. And so he wants to put down any sort of rebellion. And so Pilate calls out this guy, Barabbas, who's this murderer. After they have this dialogue, he calls out this, this guy named Barabbas, who's a, a murderer. And he says to the people, look, it's a custom I have to release one of uh, these criminals. I will release a criminal to you. You decide who I'm going to release. Seems fair. Pilate's thinking, these guys will absolutely choose Jesus. He's done nothing wrong. Barabbas is a murderer. He started an insurrection. He was part of this thing. He murdered people. He went for the head and he got it. Uh, and so I'm sure they're going to release Jesus because Jesus has done nothing wrong. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 21. Pilate says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, and this is crazy, they said, Barabbas. Pilate was confused, and he said to them, then what should I do with Jesus, who's called the Christ? And the crowd, a crowd has gathered at this point. They heard what happened. This trial happened at secret at night, but now the town is waking up, and the Jews are hearing that Jesus is on trial in front of Pilate for his life. And so this crowd gathers together, this crowd of Jews. Probably some of these people were the same ones who were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, God saves, as Jesus rode into the town earlier that week. This crowd gathers together, and they say, crucify him. And Pilate said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but that a riot was starting, and that was his fear, was that a riot would start. And he would have to go back to Caesar and say, sorry, when I was in charge, a riot started. When he saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but a riot was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. And he said, I am innocent of Jesus' blood See to that yourself. And the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. And then Pilate released Barabbas to the people. But after having scourged Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Have you ever done something in a group just really, really dumb? And you look back and you think, Why did I do it? I remember being 15 at a party. And there was a guy in our grade who was a year older, and, and uh, everybody was drinking. I wasn't drinking. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't puff the magic dragon. I didn't drink the, you know, the Hennessy. Um, and, but I needed a ride home, and I didn't want my parents coming to pick me up. You've been there. Again, high schoolers, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Do not do this. This is dumb. I was dumb. Here's what we did. About eight of us hopped in the back of his truck and he lowered the little flatbed thing over the top and he drove us all home. Eight of us piled in the back because I thought, well, if they're all here with me, one of them will cushion 
if I go down. Luckily, we made it home, but this guy was gone. And I look back on that and think that was one of the dumbest things I ever did. But group mentality got me doing something that I would not have done on my own. And so I think, you know, a friend asked me the other day, why did the crowd turn on Jesus so quickly? Earlier that week, they were shouting, he's God, he's the Savior. And now they've turned on him. And I think a couple of things. One, mob mentality could be happening. Two, their religious leaders were stirring them up. We see earlier in the story, the religious leaders were calling them to do it. And they were simply following their religious leaders. If your pastor says do something, generally we do it because we trust our pastor. They were doing what they were told to do. And I really wrestled with the question, why, God? Why did they do it all week for the last three weeks? Why did they do it? Why did they do it? Why did they do it? What is the underlying thing here? And then a question came to me that I think is a good question for us, and it's this. Not why did they turn on Jesus so quickly. Why do we turn on Jesus so quickly? Why is it that one day we can trust that God says, vengeance is mine, I am in control. If someone badmouths you, I will make it right just slow down and let me be God and you be you. Why is it that one day we can trust that and then the minute things get heated, we forget that God even exists and we fight and we lash out and we know where it's going to go because we've played these tapes over and over in our head. We know where the fight's going to go. We know we're going to feel bad afterwards. We know we're going to come back with our tail between our legs and apologize, but we know that the damage will already be done. The question for me is not why did they turn on Jesus? The question is why do we turn on Jesus? If you and I can remember that God has our back this week, that God's in control, then it will fundamentally shape the way we deal with attacks and criticism and people talking badly about us because we know that God will work it out. And if you choose to live in that reality this week, I want to tell you it will transform your marriage Because you won't repay evil for evil. You'll repay evil for good. You'll feed that person when they're hungry. You'll give them something to drink when they're thirsty. You will care for them, and it will change your marriage. Next time you think, uh, I just want to blame my boss for being a big jerk, figure out a way to love him and let God take care of your boss being a big jerk. Next time you want to cop out on your class because your teacher doesn't know anything and you know everything because you're 15, let God take care of your teacher and just learn Next time your coworkers start playing office politics, talking badly about you, don't feel the need to vindicate yourself all over the place and talk bad about them. Let God be God and let your character shine through. God will work it out. And here's how I know, and here's how I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if you trust God, he will have your back. Because on that stage that morning, Pilate stood with two men, On one side, he had Jesus, the perfect son of God. Never sinned, never did anything wrong. God in the flesh, standing in front of the people, giving himself to them. Next to him was a murderer, a man who deserved death, a man who had a cross already built for him and would be crucified later on, possibly even that day. And his name was Barabbas. And here's what blew my mind as I was preparing this week. That name Barabbas in the original language is a two-part name. Bar, which means son of, and Abba, which means father or daddy. 
So on that stage this morning, we had the true Son of the Father, Jesus Christ, who never sinned, who should have been set free. And right next to him, we had a guilty, murdering, lying, cheating, stealing, false Son of the Father, who ultimately was set free, whose cross was then taken by Jesus. So he became an innocent son of the Father because Jesus, the true son of the Father, took the cross for him. And if God won't spare his only son, but would give him for us so that we can be free from our sin, so that we can be drawn back to God, so that we can have a hope for eternity and a life worth living, don't you think he will back you up when someone attacks you? I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that he will. And this morning, I want to leave us with two things. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, remember that God is in control and allow that to shape the way you respond. And if you're here this morning and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, I want to tell you, there is a God who loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you so much that if you were the one standing on that stage, instead of Barabbas, instead of the Son of the Father, if you were on that stage, here's what Jesus would have done. He would have taken your cross when you deserve death, and he would have died for you because he did die for you. That's what we celebrate in communion. That's what we're coming to with Good Friday and Easter, that God took our sins on the cross so that we could be innocent before God the Father and we could be set free. And if you've never invited him to be the Lord of your life and to follow him on this journey, today is the day for you to do that. It will change everything. There is a God. He created you. He knows you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. And that plan only begins when you invite him to guide you and then when you follow him with every area. So I'm going to pray in just a second that God would help us remember that he's in control. And I'm going to pray for you if you've never made a decision for Jesus. And I'm going to give you some space to respond to him this morning. Would you join me as we pray? Lord, thank you for showing us a new way, another way, a different way to respond. Lord, thank you that your life shows us that God is in control. Would you help us to remember that this week? God, would you help us to remember that you have our back and that you are our defender and that you will stand up for us when we are wronged and accused and we don't have to always feel like we need to lash out and defend ourselves and defend our name because you will defend us. Did you say, vengeance is mine and I will repay? So would you help us to give you space to do the work in other people's lives that you want to do instead of us trying to work ahead of you? And if you're here this morning and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, I want to give you some time to do that right now. The Bible says that God loves you more than you could ever imagine, that he created you, that he knows you, and that you're separated from God by sin. And you know it, you see it in your life, and God wants to forgive you of your sin, and he wants to draw you back to himself. And in fact, he's already done the work. He died on the cross to take the punishment for your sin, and then he rose from the dead to break the power of sin and death and destruction in your life. And now it's time for you to respond to him. And here's how you do it. You can pray a simple prayer that acknowledges his sacrifice for you and then invites him to be the Lord of your life. And then you follow him with your life. That's how you do it. It's that simple. 
if you want to make that decision today, if you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, or if you did at one point, but you have not been following after him, pray this prayer of commitment with me. You can repeat in your head, or you can just whisper it right where you are. You can pray this prayer with me if you want to commit your life to Christ and give your life to him for the first time today. You can pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross to bring forgiveness for my sins. I know that my sin has separated me from you. And today I ask you to draw me back to yourself, to forgive me for my sins. And I ask you to come and live in my life. And I ask your spirit to guide me every day. Lord, today I want this life that I'm hearing about. And Lord, today I want you. Would you come and would you guide me? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.